the last time we were in Mark, we were in Mark chapter 5, the first 20 verses of Mark, and Jesus and his disciples had gotten into a boat and headed to the other side, and they get to an area uh, commonly known as Decapolis, which is an area of like 10 regions, and they get over there, and what we see um, is they experience some interesting things. First thing they see is that they notice a man uh, there with an unclean spirit, and we see right away what life without Jesus looks like. Uh, this man with the unclean spirit, his body has been cut with sharp stones. Uh, he's been tormented. If you get close enough to him, you can hear uh, that his shouts of torment, that he wants release. Um, in his current state, we agreed last week, in his current state, he is the picture of the end result of where Satan wants to take us. That he is the picture of the end result of where Satan wants to take us. John chapter 10, verse 10, the first part of that verse says, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And in this first part of the uh, verses 1 through 20, we see that Jesus comes and, and finds himself in front of this man. We agreed last week too, and hopefully you experienced and prayed this this week, that Satan has no good plans for us, period. And then we see a life changed by Jesus. If the first part of John 10, 10 is the Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the second part is what Jesus does when he says, but I came that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus and this man, this demon-possessed man, have nothing in common. They're opposite realms. In fact, the demon says, Jesus, oh, most high God, what do you have to do with us? One's outcome and the other's outcome. One loves, the other hates, one restores, the other tears apart. One brings hope, but the other brings despair. And we saw that Jesus never once backed down. As scary, as intimidating as he may have appeared, he never backed down. And then there's two responses that we see from the people there. The first response are those people who came from the town to see what was going on, and they were fearful, it says, and they sent Jesus away. But the man who had been restored came to Jesus at the boat and implored him, let me go with you. And that's what happens when we understand what Jesus has done for us and in us and wants to do through us, we want to implore him, let me go with you. But Jesus had another mission for him. Jesus says, go back to your town and tell everybody the great things that God had done for you. And that's what the man did. And now this morning, we see Jesus and his disciples get back in his boat and head back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And actually, there's two separate incidences that we'll look at in verses 21 through 43. The title of the message this morning is Hope for the Hopeless. But before we go any further, let me go to the Lord in prayer for us. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity you give us week in and week out to come and to pause, to be silent long enough to thank you from the deepest part of our hearts for your goodness and for your grace that we don't deserve. God, we thank you for the way you continue to be with us and be present in our lives. That you love us with an everlasting, unfailing love. An unconditional love. And as the song says, you always have us on your mind. So God, I pray this morning that you find us very thankful and grateful for who you are 
and whose we are. And God, as we come to this passage of Scripture, I pray that by your Spirit you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that you would give us insight not only into your Word, but into our lives. And that this Word of yours would pierce our hearts and be lived out through our hands and feet. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or beside you or behind you that they would hear from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. As we get started this morning in this passage, I want to ask a very simple but probably uh, most penetrating question that I think we need to be asked. And the question is this, how is your relationship with Jesus? Notice I didn't ask, how's your church attendance? or your involvement in certain Bible studies, or books that you're reading, or even your devotional. All those are great. My question is, how is your relationship with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? How do you believe, who do you believe you are to Him? Are you falling deeper in love with Him? Are you grasping more deeply how deep his love and wide his love is for you? The real question that flows from this answer is this. Am I becoming more like Jesus? And how do I know? I believe as we focus, pay attention to, and consider our relationship with Jesus and our faith in him, we will want to answer this question, yes. Yes, I desire to become more like Jesus. This passage is about the awareness and recognition of who Jesus really is and our faith in him. Now remember, I've asked since day one of this study to get inside the story, to be on scene, and I'm not going to take that away this morning because there's three parts of this passage this morning that I want us to be there. Um, there's a crying out in crisis in verses 21 through 24. There's a delay by faith in verses 25 through 34, and then life restored in verses 35 through 43. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to read 21 through 24. Mark 5, 21 through 24. It says this. When Jesus had crossed over again, he was on the other side, now he's coming back again. When they crossed back over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing on him. Now, in these verses, there's not a whole lot of specifics in the regards to uh, time frame or even exact location. Many scholars believe that Jesus returned back to Capernaum where 70% of his miracles had taken place. It doesn't mention anything about sleep or food or taking a break. Um, but we're immediately introduced to a man named Jairus. And what we know about Jairus is that Jairus was a synagogue religious ruler. He had many religious responsibilities. 
Scripture indicates that he was a man, a holy man, one that believed in God. Now remember, a synagogue ruler, religious ruler, what they were thinking about Jesus at this time. They belonged to the group of people who were arguing against Jesus. Because Jesus was taking the the law and kind of turning it upside down on them. And so Jairus was part of this group that was kind of against Jesus, on the opposite team of Jesus, if you will. Remember how in the first couple of chapters of Mark, we see how the scribes and Pharisees were questioning and opposing Jesus. But now, in desperation, Jairus, the religious synagogue ruler, comes to Jesus. And it's amazing, as one author said, how true need breaks through prejudice. For Jairus, coming to Jesus carried with it huge consequences. You remember how Jesus and Nicodemus had to talk at night because there were consequences to their conversation. Because he was on the opposite team, if you will. There were probably many times where Jairus was in the synagogue carrying out his religious duties, going to people and comforting them when they had loss, when they had tragedy, when they needed somebody. Now, we know that one thing, that the Bible calls the attention to that it is his daughter that lay sick in bed. Now, I don't have daughters. I have two sons. But I did have two sisters growing up. And here's what I recognized growing up, that my dad had a different kind of conversation language with my sisters. He used words like sweet pea and shugs and precious. He, he didn't use those words with me. And what I understand is that there is a difference from a dad-daughter relationship to a dad-son relationship. And I think Jairus has this dad mentality where there is a protection, a desire to to really be there for his daughter, to see her healed. And so Mark puts this uh, detail in there that Jairus' daughter, not just child, but his daughter, is sick to the point of death. And so you see this desperation in Jairus as he comes to Jesus and bows down before him and begs him, My daughter is sick. Is there anything you can do? Because the doctors have already made their diagnosis. There's nothing we can do, the doctor says. Jairus is at the end of his rope. Now think with me just for a minute and think maybe what Jairus is going through. A feeling of anger mixed with pity, mixed with a deep hope wanting to scream and holler, but not really knowing who to scream and holler at, as one author said. A feeling of helplessness and yet a great desire to do something, but not knowing what to do. Maybe he was thinking this. I've served in the synagogue. I've served people. And now this is what I get? And in his distress, in his desperation, he remembers a young rabbi that was coming near. He remembers hearing about this young rabbi that has been touching, teaching in the local synagogues and drawing a huge crowd. 
and maybe he's heard about this man that was on the other side of the lake. All he knew was that his daughter was sick and needed help, and he believed Jesus could make sense of his situation. And so he comes to him. Jesus is still on the bank. All the people are there. Now, the language of Jairus is interesting. He doesn't say to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, maybe you could do something. Perhaps you come. The Greek language says, Jesus, I know. I know you can do this. Maybe this father had rehearsed in his mind how this was going to go. Religious, respected leader. But now no longer poised or proud, but broken. One author said this, All of our dignity and pride goes out the window when we come face to face with Jesus in our time of need. Let me read that again. All of our dignity and pride goes out the window when we come face to face with Jesus in our time of need. We realize that our put-together poise and pride melts into humility and helplessness in the face of Jesus. And just to make a point, I'm convinced that's exactly where Jesus wants us. Not poised and proud, but broken and humble. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He gives grace to the humble, but opposes, opposes the proud. This religious synagogue leader came and was humble before Jesus and desperate. In verse 24, it says this, And Jesus went off with him. Compelled by his faith, he went off with him. Now, just picture this. Jairus comes, desperate, falls down before Jesus. Jesus, I know you can heal. Come to my house. Jesus says, let's go. Now, do you think, do you think that there was a spring in Jairus' step? Do you think Jairus was probably picked up the pace, maybe even jogging, headed back to the house? There's got to be within him this, this welling up of hope. He must have been feeling good at this point. But then in the midst of this dramatic scene, Jesus is stopped. Jarius' hope and help is interrupted. Second point is delayed by faith. Listen to verse 24. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing in on him. Verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus, all these people bumping into him. He says, who touched me? Now, what kind of question is that? How many of you have ever been to a concert or a big crowd? Who touched him? Everybody's touched you. The disciples say, you see this huge crowd pressing against you, and you ask, who touched you? Why did Jesus ask the question? What was the big deal? Why not just move on? He knew it. The woman knew it. Why stop? Was he going to humiliate her? Jesus said, that touch was different. It was a touch of faith. One that released power from me. Someone has paraphrased it by saying, someone has made a demand upon my ability. Now, it's interesting in verse 27, it says that she had heard about Jesus. I think that's awesome because somebody told her about Jesus. And she came, and now she's before Jesus, and she's healed. With fear and trembling, the woman came forward, fell down. And notice, instead of humiliating her, Jesus did two things. One, he affirmed her and said, you are healed. And two, he explains that this miracle came from him because of her faith. And I want to give you a little side note, a little Bible trivia. This is the only time in Scripture where Jesus addresses someone as daughter. Precious. Sweet pea. Shugs. She was precious to Jesus. The woman reaching out to Jesus in faith obtained the power. And one commentator put it like this. It wasn't using the power of God because Jesus is the power of God. Now this part of the story is even more fascinating when you think about the boldness and courage of this woman. Now, some scholars think this woman was uh, a Jewish woman. And if she was a Jewish woman, then she would have been declared unclean for 12 years. No one can touch her. Her husband couldn't touch her. Declared unclean. In other words, she should not have been where she was in the crowd. And if she was a Gentile woman, as some scholars think, then she was an outcast before she even got there. There was no place for this woman to be touching Jesus' garments. Now think about that. What a terrible life to lead. Outcast. Socially. In your family. And not only that, every dime she had had been spent to get made well, and it left her worse. Imagine the desperation, the defeat, the frustration. Many of us here have suffered for a long time and tried everything. And we're still in the same spot. Maybe even worse. So we can relate to this lady in just a little bit. Now in Jesus' time, just as a side note, medical options were were really crazy. 
Oftentimes, Pharisees went around claiming to be physicians, and they would offer all kinds of superstitions or tonics or, or different oils or, or minerals, different practices. In fact, one method called for seven pits to be dug with vine branches not yet four years old burned in them, and then the women would sit down in each pit and say, Be free from my sickness. In other words, she had tried literally everything she knew to do. But it's really amazing what people will do when their pain is so deep and their despair and desire for relief is so strong. This lady was pitiful. It was tragic. Yet she believed in Jesus. Now back up just for a second. Get with me about what just happened. Remember Jairus? It was great for this woman, but can you imagine Jairus now? Looking at this woman? Put yourselves in his father's place. That Jesus would stop for this outcast. On the way to heal his daughter. Now how many of you just... Let's just be honest. How many of you here love waiting? Especially when you're in a hurry with a purpose. Can you imagine Jairus? Like, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, this, this is not fair. I was first. Jesus, she's an outcast. Do you, do you know who I am? I'm a religious leader. Jesus, I mean, did you not hear me say? My daughter's about to die. How, how can you stop? And, and notice in the passage, it doesn't say he just stopped. It said the lady told him her whole story. So he was there a while. Jairus, this religious ruler, had swallowed his pride, risked the consequences from his his, his, his group had a spring in his step. And Jesus is talking to this social outcast. This interruption. I, I don't know about you, but I continually have to learn and to appreciate and thank God for the interruptions and delays that he sends in my life, even when they don't make sense. Interruptions happen. If you're a parent, you know interruptions happen. An employer, employee, father, a husband, a mom, a wife. Interruptions happen. In fact, it's probably safe to say that interruptions take up most of our time. But interruptions are not surprises to God. They may even be the work of God. 
and what may be an interruption to you and to me and a delay for us is not a delay for God. And I'm starting to understand in my life that interruptions frustrate me because I am usually in a hurry to get my own thing done. Isn't that why we get frustrated with interruptions? Because we have an agenda. We have a plan. We have somewhere to be. We have, we have something we want God to do. So God, hurry up. Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama said this, and he wrote this. Love has a speed. It's a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore the speed the love of God walks. It had me stop and ask myself, how fast am I going? The speed of self, technology, culture, or Jesus' speed of love. Think about Jesus. He could have outran Jairus. He could have been moving fast. But Jesus was walking at the speed of love and stopped for this woman. And he stops for me and you. Many times we have to slow down to catch up with Jesus. Did you hear that? Many times we have to slow down to catch up with Jesus because we are thinking, Jesus, would you please hurry? Right? Can you imagine if Jesus was too busy, too much in a hurry? What if you were the woman and Jesus said, I don't have time? From Jerry's perspective, it appears Jesus was delayed by this woman's faith, but Jesus wasn't delayed at all. And if you step back and reflect just for a second, the interruptions that come in my life challenge me in God's sufficiency and his timing, just like it did for Jairus. Interruptions are not sent to harm us, but to help us. In fact, Jesus was going to use this interruption, if you will, this delay in Jairus' life as well to take him to another level of faith. And think about Jairus just for a second. Verse 29, it gives us the miracle. Immediately the, the flow of blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from affliction. Verse 34 goes on to say, And said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Imagine this woman free and relieved from her struggles of 12 years. An overwhelming sense of new life was ahead of her. And this is what Jairus is wanting for his daughter. And so right in front of him, Jesus has proved, yes, he can do this. What he was searching for for his daughter was confirmed right in front of his eyes with this woman. But Jairus would not enjoy this good news for this woman or this good feeling for long because a message was on the way that was going to burst his bubble and rock his world. Verse 35. 
While he was still speaking, probably Jesus, he, speaking to the woman, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house and the synagogue official, and they saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum. Which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. 12 years old. 12 years. For every day that this girl had lived, this woman had suffered. And now, Jesus is talking to this woman. This little girl, get yourself into the scene, especially into the mind of Jairus. Think about the excitement that he hears that his daughter has died and the pain of that and the hopelessness of that. And Jesus hears what he had heard and he turns to him and he says, Do not be afraid. Only believe. In other words, Jesus says, don't panic. Don't panic. He was telling him to act in just in the same way that he came to him, in faith. But that is hard for us to do sometimes, right? In the midst of disappointment and despair and hurt, we need to hear Jesus say, don't be afraid. Only believe. Stay the course. Focus on me. But for Jesus, death was no longer no greater a challenge than the sickness. Jesus knows that if he has the power to restore health, he has the power to restore life. And he says two very important things to Jairus. Don't be afraid. It seems when things get out of our control, fear becomes present. And for Jairus, he thought he had something that was going to happen for him and for his daughter. And it brought up fear. We have fear hitting us from so many different places, health and family and finances and friends and family. All around us is a place of potential fear or peace. We need to hear Jesus say, do not be afraid. Then he says to him, only believe. Now what's interesting about the Greek language, about these two words, only believe, is that it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Only believe. In other words, Jesus is asking, will you still trust me? Now Jairus has to make a choice, and so do we. Believe and respond to the words, information, and circumstances around him? Or... Believe and respond to the words spoken to him by Jesus. And really, those are the only two choices we have today. 
Jesus is asking, do you trust me enough to keep on walking the speed of love with me? Now, let me be clear about something. When the Lord tells us not to be afraid, he is in no way saying that the negative situations or the things around us are not real. They're very real. That's why he says be afraid. Don't be afraid. He never denies what was happening to Jairus or his daughter. But Jairus needs to understand something, that Jesus does not do funerals. Jesus knew that death does not have the last word that God does. Jesus never comes to the end of his rope. Now, when you get to verse 38, you see that Jesus comes to the house, and there's all this commotion, that people are wailing and weeping. Now, in that day, if someone dies, you would hire professional mourners. And all these people are out there weeping and wailing. And Jesus says, why the commotion? And they begin to laugh at him. Jesus says to her, you can hear it in the tenderness of how he responds. Little girl, precious daughter, I say to you, arise, get up. The girl's made well, the crisis is calm, life is restored. Now can you just imagine the change in the house from mourning? Can you imagine, like, what were we hired for? They're mourning have been turned into praise, doubt into belief, defeat into victory. It happened for the woman, it happened for Jairus and for this little girl, and it can happen for you. Clement of Alexandria, a long time ago, he said this, Jesus changes the sunsets of life into a sunrise. One of the things I think about in this story, if you'll notice that Jesus dealt with each person individually. One author said this, God doesn't deal in bulk, but in the one-on-one. In other words, you can bump around Jesus all you want. You can come to church and bump into Bible studies or this group or that group, but Jesus wants to deal with you one-on-one. And that's why I asked at the very beginning, how is your relationship with Jesus? It's only when you step out in faith and believe it for yourself, touch the power of Jesus, that life new is experienced. And if we don't, we miss the miracle. We miss the changed life. So three questions I want to leave us with this week is this. One that I want you to sit with is, what is it that you really believe about Jesus? Jerry sought after him and begged him. Why? Because he believed who he was. This woman believed Jesus could heal her if she could just touch the hem of his garment. Do I really believe Jesus? Am I willing to trust Jesus? (laughs) That was the contact info for Jesus. Sorry, sorry. I forgot to turn it off. Where was I? The second question Are you willing to reach out to Jesus in faith like the woman? Listen to this statement Faith 
unleashes the power of Jesus. Faith unleashes the power of Jesus. Without faith, the power resides with us, which is no power at all. But faith in Jesus releases the power of Jesus. How many of you have ever been to like a museum or an art gallery? And you go see these sculptures or this art, and there's always two words at the bottom of every one of them. What does it say? Or maybe three words. Three words. Do not touch. And if your kids, you pray. I mean, if your parents, you pray your kids are reading that. There was a Japanese sculptor, famous Japanese sculptor, once puzzled the curators of an American art museum where his works were shown. And at the base of each of his statues, the sculptor had placed a polite, a polite little song, uh, sign that read, Please touch. Because the sculptor did not want people to experience his art from a distance, but to experience it by touching it. That's the same exact thing Jesus wants us to do. Not from a distance, but to touch him. Because then he'll touch us. No one can bring hope to the hopeless. There are people here this morning that I know have tried everything under the sun to find feelings of, uh, of, of identity and security and hope and purpose and you've chased everything. And you feel more empty than when you started. Jesus is the only one who can bring hope to the hopeless. Everything else will leave you empty. Only Jesus can satisfy. The third question, are the circumstances and are people in your life louder than the voice of Jesus? Do not be afraid, only believe. One author said it this way, it doesn't matter what the crowd says or doesn't say, it only matters how we respond to what Jesus says. I like what one author commentator said. Faith is not the belief that God will do what you want. Faith is the belief that God will do what is right. Do you want to see Jesus move and work in your life? See a change? Heal some hurt? It comes down to two words. Only believe. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the stories of you interacting with people who we can identify with, who we can understand times of desperation and dependence, of humility. in desperate need of hope. God, I pray through your word this morning and by your spirit that you would convince us in the deepest places that we know of, of ourselves that you love us deeply, that we can trust you, and that faith in you will release the power from you. So give us strength to understand. Give us wisdom to walk in that truth. And we'll trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.